Let's serve our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again that your word is true. The Lord, we're not following cunningly devised fables. But Lord, these are eyewitness accounts. These are real events that took place. And Father, can be verified historically. Lord, we just thank you that we are building our lives on something that's so solid, so secure. And ultimately, the foundation is Jesus Christ, the rock that will never be shaken. So Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the word made flesh. And Lord, this morning we just pray that you reveal more of yourself to us as we study your word. Help us, Lord, to understand the why of suffering. Lord, as we live in a world that is so hurting, Lord, as we turn to this wonderful book of Job, Lord, speak to us. Lord, remove the the scales, as it were, from our eyes and help us to understand more of your sovereignty and your plan through the ages. Lord, we just give you this time now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Job is one of the, the most fascinating books in the Bible in many respects. It forms part of the poetical books, if we were to kind of uh, categorize the books of the Old Testament. We've gone through already the Torah, we've got the historical books, dealing with the books in the land up to the end of Second Chronicles, and then the post-exile history we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. But now we get to these books, there's five of them, there's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And they're, they're kind of, they are poetry, in a sense. Um, and we'll see lots of things, lots of messages communicated through them. Um, wonderful uh, pieces of literature in their own right. And we'll go through and look at, in fact, just a couple of comments before we start. Uh, Oswald Chambers makes this comment. He says, it is in such a book as Job that many suffering souls will find consolation and sustaining. And this is because no attempt is made to explain the why of suffering. But rather an expression is given to suffering, which leaves one with the impression of an explanation in the final issue. In other words, Oswald Chambers is saying, and as we go through Job, we're not given the, this is why we go through the problems, but we're given a bigger picture to see the God behind all things, to see that God really is, as we were singing this morning, God really is in control. Victor Hugo said of the book of Job, tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed... And it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. That's quite a statement of all the things ever written. He also said it was the greatest masterpiece of the human mind, almost, right? It's the greatest masterpiece of God's mind, which forms part of God's incredible word to us. Tennyson actually commentated, it's the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. Again, quite a statement. Daniel Webster uh, said this, he said, the book of Job is taken, or is take, taken as a mere work of literary genius is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or of any language. So clearly, the book of Job has those that are very keen to support it and so on. As to the theme of the book of Job, many people say it deals with the problem of suffering, but that question is never actually answered, as Oswald Chambers just alluded to. We don't get the why we suffer. And some people, you know, expend not just the overall problem, but why do the righteous suffer? Well, again, no answers are given to that question either, either in the book. Really what the book reveals to us is the holiness and the sovereignty of God. This is part of God's how-to series, if you like. So... Um, we have the wisdom literature, as I've just said, sometimes referred to as the, the books of poetry. Um, the five books, Job, dealing with how to suffer. Psalms, how to pray. 
Proverbs, how to act. Ecclesiastes, how to enjoy. And then the Song of Solomon, how to love. That classification given by Oswald Chambers himself. And Job reveals the God who is with us through the trials. It doesn't, as I say, give us answers to the why of the trials, but that God is there. And as, as we saw a moment, that quote again from Oswald Chambers, that in the final analysis, we'll see, we'll understand. There's so many examples of this in scripture. Of course, David's life. Why did David have to go through that experience of being anointed to be king? Everything was going well. He's brought to the king's court. He learns of the things in the king's court as he's playing as a musician. And then he's finally given this meteoric rise to fame as he defeats Goliath. He made head of the army and so on. Everything's right for him to take over the kingdom. And then he spends years fleeing for his life. Why? Well, we see in the final analysis that God used that. And it made David a much better king because of the things he learned through that time. That situation with Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, that we read about in the book of Daniel with the fiery furnace. Why did God put them in that situation that they were about to be killed by the king of the world at that time, the, the, the world leader, Nebuchadnezzar? Only again to see in the final analysis how God worked through. And so many other examples we could mention through scripture. Some of you may be aware of the um, wonderful story um, that uh, surrounded the lives of five American missionaries who God laid on their hearts to go down into the Amazon and to preach to the Orca Indians down there. These, uh, this was a tribe of people that had had no real contact with the outside world. They were barbaric, they were savages. They reckoned that every family had somebody that had been speared to death or shot to death or something. Um, there was problems with outsiders coming in. Um, various oil companies and Shell and so on wanted to get down there and drill for oil. So many of their workers were killed by these Indians. Uh, they ended up abandoning the project. The American government ended up giving up as well and moving out. But these missionaries, there was five people. There was a man by the name of Jim Elliott, uh, Nate Saint, another, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Uterain. Um These five men just felt the call of God on their lives to go down there. And they went and they, they got there, they flew in by plane, and they made contact, the first peaceful contact that had ever been known with this tribe. And then they were killed. All of the, all five of those men were spared, and they all had young families. And that's one of those, why God, why did you allow that? Well, in the final analysis, we find that the widow of Jim Elliott, a lady by the name of Elizabeth, and also the sister uh, of Nate Saint, a lady by the name of Rachel, they felt compelled to carry on this work. And they went down there, and they got invited to go and live as part of this tribe, and eventually, cutting a long story short, they learnt the language and they preached the gospel to them. And this tribe got converted. And the, they started going out and spreading amongst the other tribes in that region and so on. And an incredible work. I mean, it made national uh, news at the time in America. It was on Time magazine, all these kind of things. This was back in the, the 1950s and so on. And then in the following years. Um, and there's a wonderful, some of you may be familiar with Stephen Curtis Chapman, a Christian singer-songwriter. He did a tour a few years ago, and um, he had Steve Saint, the son of one of these uh, uh, men, Jim, uh, of Nate Saint, um, who went on tour with him, but not just Steve, but also uh, the man that they then called Grandpa, uh, who was one of these Indians who'd actually killed his father. And we see these two on stage talking and sharing the, the way that God had used his situation. You know, 
is another example of how through suffering, God does things that we could never have imagined and never have uh, seen. Um, But God is a God who knows the end from the beginning. And really one of the greatest lessons, the greatest verses for me in the whole Bible comes from Job chapter 13, 15. And we read there, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I mean, that was the, the mindset of these five missionaries. You know, look, even if we die, in fact, one of them, they, they discussed, should they take guns with them down on this mission? And they agreed they would take guns to protect themselves, but they would never fire those guns on these Indians. For the reason they simply stated is that we're ready for heaven, but they're not. And they just knew that even if God will allow them to die, and they knew that may well be the situation, they would still trust God because God is perfect. His ways are perfect. His plan is perfect. I mean, that is the most sublime utterance of faith I think you find anywhere in Scripture. Even if God were to kill me, I'll trust him. Why? Well, because of another verse that we find in Scripture. In the book of Psalms, we're told there, Psalm 119, verse 68, that God is good and does good. And David says, teach me thy statutes. That's the basic premise of everything, that God is good and does good. God can't do anything that is not good because God's very nature and character is good. Really, the, the secret to suffering we actually find in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Summarizes faith, hope and love. Job 19, verses 25 to 26. Job says there, and we were singing this in some of our songs this morning, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. You see, the, the hope that Job had was in his Redeemer. That his Redeemer lives. That there was somebody who could do something he couldn't do. And as Job says here, quite clearly, I know that my body will grow old and I will die and I will decay. But I also know that I'll be resurrected. Because in my flesh I'll see God. It's that faith, that hope. And it comes from that love that God has for his creation. I love this summary by Wayne Jackson. He says this. The book defends the absolute glory and perfection of God. It sets forth the theme echoed in Psalm 18, verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. God is deserving of our praise simply on the basis of who he is. Apart from the blessings he bestows. Satan denied this, but Job proved him wrong. And that's what we're going to see as we just look at this very brief summary. We spent the best part of a year journeying through the book of Job a little while ago. So we're just having a very cursory overview of it this morning. But that's a great kind of summary in a sense. That God is deserving of our praise simply because he is God. And because he is good. And this is what we're going to see Satan challenge as we go through. Well in terms of when did the book of Job occur with the events in the book of Job. There's lots of theories. Some even place it as late as the time of Solomon. Which for a number of reasons doesn't fit with the biblical uh, account we're given. Uh, I believe we're looking here shortly after the time of the flood. Okay, the time of the flood is uh, 1656 years from the creation of the world, given the chronology in the Bible. And it's just before we get to the time of Abraham, which you'll see is a very significant uh, reason why I believe that's the case. It's certainly the time of the patriarchs. But there's no mention of the law or Israel. 
And yet we do find the sacrifices are mentioned. And the question we'll ask and we'll look at in a moment is, how did Job, Job know about substitutionary atonement? The idea of a sacrifice in place of our blood, as it were. There's no mention of other gods also, which would also suggest that we're looking early post-flood. <coughs> Evil does still exist, though. We'll see that as well. But also another key factor is the length of Job's life. We know that he has ten adult children at the beginning of the book. Um, we suggest he's got to be at least around about 60 years old for them to have been grown up by this point. Um, and then we find he lives 140 years after all the calamities. So we're looking at a lifespan of at least 200 years here. Well, that compares with Terah, Abraham's father, who lived for 205. Abraham himself, 175. Isaac, 180. But then we start to drop off. Jacob, 147. Joseph, 110. And it gets shorter since. So um, we see that the age of Job compares with that idyllic condition of the world after the flood, before things started to get worse, before there was this degeneration and so on with the human race and the climate and all sorts of other things. So Job's life may well have overlapped Noah's life. Noah lived for 350 years after the flood. Job and Noah may well have been able to have conversations together. Shem lived for 502 years after the flood. So again, we've got to realize that some of these things that we we see echoes of, and we'll talk in a moment, um, may well have been first-hand accounts passed down and so on. Abraham himself says born 352 years after the flood. And I believe it's somewhere in this period of time we're looking. If we look at it, a kind of a timeline and uh, the lengths of people to Noah, Shem, and then the descendants coming all the way down. I believe it's around about the time of Peleg that we get the Tower of Babel, the dividing up of the nations and so on. Um, but Job, I think, sits around this time, somewhere just before Abraham uh, in this period here. Uh, and again, so he would have been personally known Shem and may well have even known Noah um, firsthand. Interestingly, just as an aside, uh, Abraham, if you date it from the creation of the world, the birth of Abraham is 1948, 1948, the birth of the nation of Israel. I don't know if you want to do anything with that, but it's just significant, possibly, that we have 1948 as another rebirth of the nation of Israel. So um, just as an aside. Okay. Well, in terms of the structure of the book, we have the introduction, very quick, simple introduction in chapter 1, the first five verses. And then we go on to see Satan's assault on Job and Job's losses and what we have. And then Job's friends arrive. It's been said with friends like these, you don't need enemies. We'll look at them in a moment. And that really takes us right the way through uh, this battle, uh, this dialogue, this conversation, this argument really between Job and his friends. It takes us right the way through to chapter 31. And then another friend, as it were, appears on the scene, a younger individual by the name of Elihu. Uh, we get from chapter 32 to 37. And then finally, God steps onto the scene and uh, speaks directly to Job. And then we have the conclusion, really. Job's three friends depart, tail between their legs. And then we can see, of course, Satan is defeated uh, in, through this uh, account. Uh, and Job, of course, is blessed as a result of it. Uh, and then we just get the conclusion, which we'll look at in a short while. I mentioned um, the singer-songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman. One of the songs that he's uh, written, I just love the words, and it's so apl- applicable for this study. I just want to read this to you. And you may be able to resonate with this right now, depending on where you are in your own life. It says, But right now, all I can say is, Lord, how long before you come and take away this aching? This night of weeping seems to have no end. But when the morning light breaks through, We will open up our eyes and we will see. It's everything that he said it would be. And even better than we would believe. 
and he's counting down the days till he says, come with me. And finally, he'll wipe every tear from our eyes and make everything new, just like he promised. Wait and see. Just wait and see. Wait and see. I love those words. They're just so powerful. And again, another fitting summary. Let's just look at some of the the key verses as we go through. Chapter 1, we start off, and we're told there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, perfect and upright, that may well be why Satan has such a hatred for this individual. Because if I'm right, and if this is in the early days after the flood, it wasn't long before this that another individual, Noah, was declared to be just and perfect, pleasing to God because of the way he lived his life, not willing to give in to compromise. And think of the problems that Noah had caused Satan in a sense. Well, what could another righteous man do? It's been said before, the world has not yet seen what God can do through a life that is totally yielded to him. But there are glimpses in scripture of people like Noah, like Job and others, and Samuel's another good example, of the way that God can just change situations, change countries, change the course of history by people that are just set aside for him, for his working, and so on. Yeah, we see somebody like Elijah just step on the page of history, and the whole nation is changed because of one man, a one praying man. Satan, certainly, maybe because of this parallel we see with Noah, but also it just has this absolute hatred of, of Job. But unwittingly, as a result of this, Satan is actually going to mastermind his own failure uh, in this, as we see. The other thing we're told is that Job feared God. Well, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us that's the beginning of wisdom. Job was a wise man. Why? Because he feared God. You know, a lot of people treat God as a buddy, as a friend, or the man upstairs, and so on. You know, every knee will bow before our Creator. And we need to fear Him accordingly. And to fear God is, of course, to acknowledge that there are consequences for our actions. Well, how important that is. Because, you know, we need to acknowledge that God is Creator. We're told that Job eschewed evil. He avoided evil, again, because he feared the Lord. He was no doubt aware of the effects. Again, if this is post-flood, it would have been very fresh in the memories of everybody on the earth at this time. What had happened? You see, one of our greatest problems is that we don't often see the consequences of our actions. Why do people sin? Well, very often it's because they think they can get away with it. They think it's not hurting anybody. They think the things that maybe they can do behind closed doors, nobody else is affected by that. And, of course, we know the reality that that is not the case. But that's why so often people do fall into sin, because they think it's not going to be a problem, nobody's going to be affected, nobody's going to get hurt. If you look in all the flood legends, and so many of them around the world, two-thirds of them agree that man's wickedness was the cause for God sending the flood on the earth. Again, all these flood legends that have spread out, and lots of similarities we see. But again... Job in this time, fearing God. Why? Because so aware what iniquity had already done to the world that God had originally created. And we're told, and so it was, when the days of their feasting, so this is Job's children, would get together, they'd celebrate birthday parties or whatever else, that Job, we're told, sent and sanctified them. Now this is really quite interesting because Job said it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And we're told, thus did Job continually. 
So we see, in a sense, the threefold responsibility of a father coming through here. And if you're a father, these three things should apply to you. We should be prophets to our own family, declaring God's word to our children. We should be also acting in the role of priest as an intercessor, interceding on behalf of our families also. And the other role as king, that we should be head to protect and to provide for. Those three roles, prophet, priest and king. And we see them echo through scripture. Of course, Christ is the ultimate example of all of that. But for any father, those, th- those things should apply to us. Well, Job clearly wouldn't allow his children to uh, fall away into to sin. He was so conscious that he wanted to maintain their relationship with God and, and pray for them and intercede and so on and offer these sacrifices. But we're told that he offered burnt offerings. Now the question we need to ask, of course, is if this predates the Levitical priesthood, which it clearly must do from the context of the book, how did Job know how to do this? Because it's not until we get to the book of Leviticus that God gives us the details of those offerings. Well, I think we see here some echoes of Eden, as it were. In Genesis 3.21, we're told that unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. So God institutes the first blood sacrifice. These two innocent animals, they're slain, their blood is shed, and their coats are given to, their skins are given to Adam and Eve as clothing for them. So God sets up this whole situation. Now, the punishment for sin was to be death. But God accepts the death of an innocent substitute to atone for their sin. What God says is, rather than your blood being shed, I'll accept the blood of an innocent substitute in your place. Leviticus 17.11, again, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So when that blood is shed, the life goes as well. So this is payment for sin. Ultimately, God was laying the foundation that will culminate in the Saviour coming as well. Genesis 3.15 speaks of that seed, that promised one. Well, as a result of this, Adam's legacy effectively then, we see a mercy seat um, placed at the gate of Eden. Uh, Remember, we have these two cherubim that are there, uh, that God places there to guard the way. But it also seems to indicate that with the, the Ark of the Covenant, we have again the two cherubim with the mercy seat on top of the Ark. And it seems to imply this place of sacrifice and so on. We looked at this when uh, we studied uh, through the book of Job in detail. Um, but there's an interesting study you can do, even looking at the, um, the, the text in the Hebrew uh, of Genesis, uh, of when Adam and Eve were cast out. And it would seem to be that Adam would have gone back to this place to offer sacrifices. And you can imagine Cain and Abel speaking to, to their mum when they were probably just young. Because, of course, we know that uh, Abel understands the, na- the basis of offering a blood sacrifice. And he offers, of course, of the flock, and it's pleasing to God. Cain offers the fruit of his own hand. But no doubt they'd seen Adam and no doubt said to, to Eve, you know, Mom, why is Dad so miserable? He's the most miserable person in the whole world. Of course, there wasn't that many of them at that time. And you can see that Adam would have no doubt gone to this place and offered this sacrifice. And as he came back, that probably look of contentment, knowing that his sin had been atoned for and the sin of his family. And this gets passed down. Of course, we see it with Abel as a direct uh, consequence of these things. And then down through history and Job again doing the same thing. As we said already, Job probably knew Shem and was familiar with these accounts that had been passed down from the pre-flood world. This atonement through the death of a substitute, had been passed down to successive generations. So it's interesting then that we look here that Job is technically a Gentile saved by the blood. 
Well, as we get into verse 6, we then start to see the assaults of Satan uh, on Job. Of course, he goes to the Lord. We read verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Well, Revelation 12 verse 10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that goes before the throne, continually accusing us before the throne. But of course, we read in Revelation that the saints overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. But Satan here, when it all comes with the sons of God, we've looked at this previously, that phrase in the Hebrew, Benacha Elohim, uh, literally a direct creation of God. The angels were a direct creation of God. But it's used of angels, we see a number of times in scripture. It's used of Adam, because Adam was a direct creation of God. It's also used of all believers. How so? How are we to be categorized as such? Well, quite simply because of what we're told in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. You see, we are now a direct creation of God. We've been born again. God is the father of spirits, we're told in the book of Hebrews. We are now a direct creation of God because his Holy Spirit indwells us and we have been literally born again. Again, this title applied to us. In Job chapter 38, we read there of when God is laying the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars, a reference to the angelic beings, sang together and all the sons of God, again, direct creations of God, the angels, shouted for joy. So we see this idea. Now it's interesting that we're told there that all the sons of God shouted for joy when God was laying the foundation of the earth. Now that's interesting because if all means all, which probably all has to mean all, otherwise all wouldn't mean all if you follow, Satan must have been among the angels giving glory to God at that point. Because if all the sons of God are shouting when God is laying the foundation of the earth and they're praising God, then Satan must have been amongst that group. God also declared when he finished creating everything that everything was good. Now if you've got the embodiment of evil running around in the midst of your creation, it's not something you necessarily would say is good. But God declares creation to be good. The point? Well, the point is simply this. That Satan, I believe, had not fallen at the end of the work of creation. It's not until after that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 7 we read, The Lord said to Satan, Where did you come from? Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from from walking up and down in it. Now isn't the earth the Lord's and everything in it? Psalm 24 verse 1. Well, let me ask this question. Who holds the title to the earth? Well, originally Adam held the title. Adam was given dominion over the whole earth. But Adam forfeited it. And as a result of that, Satan now has become the one who has titled the earth. We read verse 8, The Lord has said, uh, Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? But there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? And thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. Effectively, Satan is saying here, Job only fears you because you protect him. That's the only reason. You've given him so many things. Why wouldn't he love you? 
course, it's interesting to note here that Satan confirms that the blessings come from the Lord. James 1.17 tells us that every good gift comes from God. Satan makes that declaration inadvertently here himself. But as regards this idea of a hedge of protection around Job, it's absolutely right. There was a hedge of protection around Job, but it's something that's promised to all of us. Not one of us is exempt from this blessing. You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're told in Psalm 127 verse 2 that he gives his beloved sleep. We're told that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to them that are heirs of salvation. And that there's guardian angels looking over children. We're told in 1 Samuel 2.9 that he'll keep your feet from stumbling. In Deuteronomy 33.27 we have his everlasting arms. Also John 10.28-29 we have the hands of God, the hands of the Saviour holding us, not letting us go. We're told in Psalm 119 that he lightens our path, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and so on. So many scriptures we could refer to. Of these blessings that are there, Psalm 1 itself, we'll be looking at that next week. Again, blessings that those of the Lord, those that have given their lives to him. Psalm 91 verse 4, he's a shield and a buckler. He's there to protect, to strengthen, to help us, to give us all we need. So, This hedge of protection that surrounded Job, Satan's right, there was a hedge around him. But it wasn't a hedge that was uh, unjustified. It was because Job was righteous. Job feared God. And that's why God had put this hedge of protection around him. You see, God as a loving father was protecting his own child. But what Satan says is, If you put forth now thine hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face, the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, All that he has is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. This incredible uh, request in a sense is made by Satan. And even more so, why does God allow this? Well again, what Satan is saying is that Job only serves God because of the blessings. And this is of course a challenge to the age old issue of free will. Free will of course is required if there is to be true love. If God would just make us love him... Which, of course, he could do. He's sovereign. He could do whatever he wants. But that wouldn't be real love. You know, if you met a, a wife-to-be and you forced her to love you, you made her love you, you know, it's, that's not love. But it's love when it comes from the heart, when it's choice on our part. Well, we then go through. We see Job is subjected to his first test. He loses all his cattle, the livelihood, and so on. He loses, effectively, all his household. He loses all his sons, all his daughters. As a result of this, he loses his standing in the community. It's just incredible, just calamity that comes upon this man. And also going to lose the respect that he once knew. And people that, we'll read Job himself speaks of the the way that people now laugh at him and mock him and so on. We've got to realise that this is the adversary that we're dealing with. You see, First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. You see, we shouldn't be ignorant of this. And Satan, of course, isn't omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not like God. Nor is he all-powerful, omnipotent. He hasn't got the power that God has got. But he is a psychopath. You may think that's a harsh term to use. The definition of psychopath in dictionary is a person afflicted with a personality disorder characterized by a tendency to commit antisocial and sometimes violent acts as a failure to feel guilt for such acts. Well, that very much characterizes Satan. 
And Satan, as we were saying a moment ago, is the god of this world for now. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Luke 4. Mention this to us as well. And Satan, we clearly see from that account of what happens to Job, can also affect weather and health. But of course, to make mention of Ecclesiastes 10 verse 8, which says, He who breaks a hedge, a serpent shall strike him. Now it's interesting because we read of this hedge that protected Job, but it would indicate from that verse in Ecclesiastes that we have the power of breaking that hedge. If we step out of God's blessings, then we open ourselves up to attacks from the enemy. It's a very interesting concept. It's echoed with the cities of refuge. The idea that, well, you were in the cities of refuge, you were safe, but if you left the cities of refuge, then potentially would be uh, for victim of the one who was the avenger of blood. Genesis 1 verse 27, again, we're told there that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created them. So God creates man as the pinnacle in the sense of his creation, in his own image, in his own likeness. Adam was made like God. But of course Satan was not. Adam therefore outranked Satan in Eden. And because you've got to ask the question, in Revelation 12 verse 4, we find that a third of the angels rebel and follow Satan. What was it that made a third of the angels who had known the majesty and the glory of God, the seen God go through this wonderful work of creation? What was it that made them rebel? 1 Timothy 3 gives us a clue, because we're told that, in verse 6, speaking of a bishop and an elder within a church, that not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So we see that the devil's problem, the root cause, was pride. And we see this as we go to the books of Isaiah. We find these I will statements that are mentioned in the book. There's five I will statements. The last of them is, I will be like the Most High. Satan wasn't wanting to be God. He wasn't that foolish. But he wanted to be like God. Adam had been made like God. Satan wants that position. He wants to have. See, Satan, I am sure of it from the context and things we've already looked at, thought that everything was being made for him. Just as we saw last week looking at Haman. Who, whom would the king want to honour more than me? And if Satan is there as God is creating, whom would God want to honour more than Lucifer, the one that had this access to the throne of God, that walked on the coals in front of the, the throne? Who would God want to honour? And suddenly God then creates man and says, that's the one. And so just as we see with Haman and Mordecai, that incredible parallel in the sense in the book of Esther we were looking at last week, so Satan, in the same kind of way, has his absolute hatred for mankind because man was given this position. We're told in Ezekiel 28 that Satan was in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was in covering. Everything was great, and we're told that, that, that they were, you, thou was perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. So as a result of Satan's pride and arrogance comes this fall, and so on, this hatred for humanity from this point on, as iniquity is found in him. So in his pride, Satan sought to destroy man and claim his position and title to the earth, which he's done. Again, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is for now the God of this world. 1 John 5.9 tells us that we know we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Satan has this position. <clears throat> Satan, if you like, stole the earth from Adam. Again, that verse 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, 
the God of this world, blinded the eyes of them which believe not. In Luke chapter 4, we find that Satan there in the temptation of Jesus says, the devil said unto him, all this power I will give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. Satan makes it very clear. He's been given this authority. And he says, I've got this power. And he offers Jesus this shortcut, in a sense, to, uh, to a throne and to a kingdom. Jesus doesn't contest Satan's claim. Because at the point that Satan is saying this, Satan does have that position. You see, Satan has this world for now. But there is a day coming. And in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, we find there that this scroll is produced, written on both sides, which we know from the context, from the times, that would imply it's a legal document, typically a title deed for a property and so on. And this angel comes and says, but there isn't anybody worthy to open this document. John, we're told, sobs convulsively. So, uh, verse 4, we're told, and John says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open it. So John understands the seriousness of this problem, this title deed to the earth. If no one is found worthy to open it, to claim title to the earth, then it would remain in Satan's hands. Well, of course, the narrative goes on and in Revelation 5 verse 5, uh, 5, verse 5 we read, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. It's an incredible declaration, one of these wonderful, you know, uh, you know cheering moments, as it were, in the, the scheme of history, as Jesus is revealed, unveiled as the one who is worthy. This is again, Book of Ruth, chapter two, verse one, one of those wonderful scriptures. Naomi had a kinsman. There is a way. And this verse is one of those, those verses. There is a way. There was someone who's found worthy. And Jesus takes his scroll and claims back title to the earth. So now, in our study, effectively it's one nil. Satan has challenged God and said that only because you give him the blessings does Job serve you? So Satan's allowed to take away all the things Job has. And no, he still serves God. He said, you know, take away everything and he'll curse you. Well, that, that didn't happen. Satan contended that Job only served God because of the blessings. And despite losing so much, Job doesn't turn his back on God or claim God to be unjust. In fact, we read at the end of the first chapter, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Well, chapter 2 brings us to round 2, if you like, of the, the struggle. And Satan again goes back and asks permission this time, not just to take away things from Job, but to affect his life. And God effectively says, yes, but don't kill him. You're not allowed to kill him. You can harm him. You can, uh, and we find that boils and the horrible things are placed upon Job physically. But of course, if Satan now loses the argument this time, He loses the argument for all time. You see, if a man or a woman can love God simply because God is God, then Satan's claim that man only loves God because of the blessings and the protection is falsified. So this is a challenge, in a sense, to the plan of redemption. And it's got to be settled. This is why I believe we have this account of the book of Job in Scripture. Because it's such a pivotal point that Satan is bringing this challenge to God. It's not just about Job. It's about God's plan of redemption. 
And Satan effectively saying is, your plan of redemption, God, is not valid. And God says, okay, let's prove it. Let's take it to a, a court of law in a sense. And I think, in a sense, this is a missing piece of the jigsaw for us in understanding where Job fits in and why the book of it is given to us. You see, God's plan of redemption depends on man being a free moral agent, capable of accepting or rejecting. But you see, if we're coerced into accepting, because there's no other choice in a sense, if we're, we accept salvation because that's really the only option, of course, what Satan's suggesting is that would make redemption a farce. If we only accept it because of the blessings, not because of who God is. So God would not justly be able to claim the restoration of the Edenic relationship, the, the covenant that started in Eden, which we see at the end of the book of Revelation. God speaking of this walk with man being restored. God wouldn't be able to claim that unless man is choosing God simply because God is God. And that's what this challenge is all about. And again, this has got to be settled before we get to the cross. Because from that point, faith gives way to sight. You see, from the cross's point of view, the blessing of salvation through the blood of Christ eclipses all other benefits derived from God's hand. You know, in terms of health and protection and whatever else God chooses to give us, none of those stand up against the incredible blessing of salvation through the blood of Jesus. And so the moment we get to the cross, this argument in a sense becomes irrelevant because it has to be settled prior to that point. Of course, Job does have faith in a coming redeemer. But again, his faith and his trust in God is because of who God is. So the book of Job then summarizes a direct attack by Satan on the plan of redemption. If man can be shown to only love God for the blessings, redemption is a farce. And again, the idea of redemption is to restore, to purchase back. But if Satan can win this one, he'll win the day. But if God wins, the justification for his master plan of salvation is firmly established and cannot be challenged. So the book of Job is pivotal to the plan of redemption. Why did God allow Satan to attack Job? Well, quite simply, to settle this question, as I said a moment ago, effectively in a court of law, and to remove any claim that Satan would try to make as to the legitimacy of God's plan. And that's why I believe this exercise doesn't ever need to be repeated. God won't ever pick another person and put them through the things that Job went through, because this was a once-only thing. And that's why these events took place. That's why God allowed it. But don't get any false impression of thinking that God may allow something like that in your life either. Because once this situation is dealt with and addressed, it's over. So, who wins? Well, we know, of course, it's God who wins. Job does not give in. Job doesn't curse God. He doesn't blame God. And so, we find that Satan effectively loses the argument. What happens next? Well, this is very significant. Because again, of the timing of the book, as I said earlier, what happens next? We get to the time of Abraham. And when God starts, in a sense, the plan of salvation in motion. Of course, we can argue it started back in Genesis 3.15. But it's with the choosing of Abraham that God then establishes this nation to protect the seed and bring the saviour into the world. And so I think it's significant that this is settled before the calling of Abraham. And that's why I think that the timing of the book is such. And very, very significant, all these things, how they fit together. 
Interesting just to note the attacks of Satan. In chapter 1 we've mentioned that already, Job's wealth and children. Chapter 2 it's his health that's attacked. Chapter 3, Satan uses Job's wife uh, to attack him. She says, curse God and die. Job chapter 4, his friends arrive and that takes his right, sorry, uh, the fourth attack, Job chapter 4 through to 31. His friends and then we have Elihu as a separate uh, individual. Satan uses all of those things. Okay, so quick cursory review then. Let's just take the first eight chapters. The scene is set in chapter one. That's the first attack. The second chapter really is 2 nil to God. Satan's lost both of these arguments. These second two attacks occur there. Chapter three, Job speaks. He says, my life is now worthless at that point. In chapter 4 and 5, Eliphaz, one of these friends, presents the conclusion. It's all very easy to present the conclusion without knowing all the facts that's done here. And he says, Job must be guilty. Look at what's going on. He's got to be guilty. There's no other explanation. Chapter 6 and 7, Job states his case. And he simply says he doesn't deserve this divine attention. Why is God choosing me of all the people? I don't deserve this particular attention from God. Effectively is what he says. And also he says, Eliphaz is teaching me nothing. He's just hot air, effectively. As it goes on, we find in chapter 8, Bildad, another one of the friends, uh, the shortest person in the Bible. We're told that uh, he was Bildad the Shuhite. Um, so just a little bit uh, shorter than Nehemiah. There you go. Um, in chapter 8, though, he offers his counsel. And effectively he says, my theology tells me you're wrong because you're suffering. In other words, I see you're suffering Therefore, God's allowing you to suffer. Therefore, you've done something wrong. And that's simply the conclusion. Well, you may know people like that today. It's not a, uh, hasn't disappeared with, disappeared with time. And effectively, what Bildad says is, repent, it's going to be okay. If you repent and just say sorry. This is kind of, in a sense, the paralysis of analysis. Trying to understand and come to a conclusion without having all the data. Galatians 6 verse 7 does indeed say that you shall reap what you sow. But we need to understand that we've got to get the perspective right, because that's true before the event, but you can't apply it retrospectively. You can't say, because of what you're sowing, I know what you reaped. Because you don't have all the data. But it is true that if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. But you can't look at somebody who's suffering and say, ah, because they're suffering, that's a result of sin. It could be, but we can't draw that conclusion. Chapter 9 is a pivotal chapter in the book. <clears throat> We're told of a number of wonderful things here, but Job's kind of whole take on things changes. He says, speaking of God, which removes the mountains and they know not, which overturns them in his anger. Just listen to the, to the text. saying that God overturns mountains, which shakes the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commands the sun and it rises not, and seals up the stars. Now, of course, we think maybe this is just poetry, is it? Or is it a historical fact? Is Job recording for us history that we've long since forgotten? You see, there may well be an allusion to the flood or some of the other things that were taking place. We've talked before about the cataclysmic events that could have taken place in the past. Things that have massive impact on life on earth and lots of other things that go along with that. And Job seems to be speaking here of first-hand experience as well. What's the conclusion of those thoughts of Job's? Well, he's saying that God says what he means. You see, we are victims of the wisdom of our modern age, which tells us that everything is carrying on the same as it always does. And, so on. and we're prone to interpret scripture through the lens of our understanding. So we read verses like that 
about mountains being turned upside down and the pillars of the earth being shaken. And we think, oh, it must be just picture language. Why? How much do we know of what went on in the world back then? There's a lot of compelling evidence to suggest this world has not been quite as nice and serene as we perceive it to be now. And the more we study, the more we find that we can take God's word seriously. <clears throat> There's a book written down... Um, Catastrophes in the Old Testament. It's not actually written by two Christians, although they write it looking at the events that are recorded in Scripture and comparing it with other secular events that have been recorded. And the conclusion is that what we read in books like Job and chapter 9 here and so on, it's not poetry and fiction. These are actual historical events that occurred in the earth. Incredible earthquakes and even crustal tides and all sorts of things. number of causes. We can talk maybe on Thursday at Bible study about some of those things if you want to come along. But we're also told, which alone spreads out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. It's interesting, we're talking about spreading out the heavens. Yeah, Modern cosmology concurs with Job. They, they talk of a singularity and so on, and there's various theories that come under the heading of the Big Bang. But what is in general agreement is that the heavens are spreading out. Well, 17 times in Scripture we're told that that's exactly what God has done. And Job records it here in probably what is, from a date point of view, the oldest book of Scripture. It's incredible, these insights that we find. This is an amazing verse, though. Job 9, verse 10. It's talking of God, which does great things past finding out. Yes, and wonders without number. Let me just mention a couple of things that we do know of what God has done. Just think about yourselves for a minute. You've got 6,000 taste buds on your tongue. Your nose can tell 10,000 different aromas. There's some people that uh, seem to be able to have even better uh, than that, but uh, that's apparently the, the average. The eye's got 110 million rods and cones connecting it to your brain. And there's 10,000 steps between black and white. I mean, think of it in terms of computing terms today. But your eye, 10,000 different steps between black and white. There's 137 million light-sensitive cells in your eyes. And of course, eyes are just a radio receiver. They pass the information to the brain, which does all the work. It's incredible. The blood vessels, of course, that we have as well in front of the retina to protect our eyes from the UV light. People have said it's a poor design. But actually, you compare it to an octopus that lives under the water, and it's protected because of the water, and that has it the other way around. The blood vessels uh, are behind the retina. So God's clearly designed wonderfully. Our brain, there's more connections in our brain than the entire communications network on planet Earth. When you think of all the cables that are in the ground, you know, BT digging up the road and putting new cables in, new fibre and everything else, but you think of all the connections around the whole world, there's more connections in your brain. It takes around 200 bits of information to run the universe, the planets, the solar system and everything else. It takes several million bits for a simple bacteria. It takes trillions of bits to run you in terms of the programming, the information that's there. And of course that defies the evolutionary model. Information, of course, is required. And information can only come from an intelligent source. There's no natural process where information is added to the genome. One great interview with uh, um, the high priest of evolution, uh, Dawkins himself, he's asked that question. Can you give me a process where information is added to the genome? And he just sits there for about 15 seconds with this dumb look on his face. 
other than the usual one. No, it's just a specific look. He's just kind of absolute kind of... Um, and in the end, they have to cut the film, and then they go back, and he answers a completely different question. Why? Because there is no answer to that. There's no way you can add information to our DNA. It's already there. It's programmed. From conception until birth, the baby adds 15,000 cells per minute to its body. And each cell is more complex than the space shuttle. That's amazing. Just a single cell is more complex than anything mankind has ever designed, developed or built. And as a baby's developing, 15,000 of those cells are added every minute to its body. That's why ladies get a little bit worn out during pregnancy. There's a lot going on in there. What's our response to those things? Well, Francis Crick, who was one of the uh, two people that helped to discover DNA, said this, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but evolved. In other words, you've got to keep pinching yourself and telling yourself it evolved because if you looked at the facts, you'd never come to that conclusion. I prefer to go with King David who said, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works and that my soul knows right well. Just again, Job says that God does great things past finding out. You know, if you think of from the wonders of the universe to the complexity of life, there's some of the things that we have found out. They're the things we do know. So what about the things that we don't know? The things of God that we can't find out? And you start to get an understanding of just how amazing and how awesome our God truly is. Job says, lo, he goes by me, I see him not. He passes on also, but I perceive him not. You know, we're often ignorant of the ways of God. Our hearing isn't always sensitive to his voice. God is spirit. We, of course, are just fleshly. And God is extra dimensional, beyond time and space. He could pass right by us without us even knowing. Job says, whom though I were righteous, yet I would not answer, but I would make my supplication to my judge. See, Job acknowledges his own unrighteousness. God had already said that Job was upright. But Job acknowledges that being upright and being righteous are two totally different things in terms of the way we compare ourselves against God. And the question we ask, and sometimes we use it in evangelism, asking somebody, are you a good person? Albert Barnes, in his commentary, said, God will judge us in the last day according to his estimate of our character and not according to the estimate which we may form. It's two very different things. Well, again, Barnes says this, uh, you know, speaking as it were from Job's point of view, he says, I who am so feeble, how can I contend with him? If the most mighty objects in the universe are under his control, if the constellations are directed by him, if the earth is shaken and mountains move from their places by his power, and if the men of most exalted rank are prostrated by him, how can I presume to contend with God? And Barnes just comments and says, such was the veneration which Job had for the character of God that should he attempt to answer him, he would select his words with the utmost care and attention. Job says, if I will forget my complaint and leave off my heaviness and, my, and comfort myself, I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou will not hold me innocent. This is a key verse in the book of Job. Because Job is saying, if I say, it's a kind of a cause and effect here, that if Job gives up his search for an answer to these things, even though it's a heavy burden... I know, he says. He says, then the outcome could bring greater sorrow and also be dishonouring to God. Job effectively sees that he's charged by God, he's accountable to God for the fruit that he is bearing through his trial. An interesting point maybe we should take on board there as well. 
This is often easier for us to give up, but God will hold us accountable for how we have persevered through the trials. Remember, 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of our assessment day before the throne and how we have lived our lives. Have we sown to the flesh? Have we, you know, have we built with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw? Notice as well that the offerings on the altar were a sweet savour to God. God loves it when his saints, those suffering through circumstances, still trust him and seek him. Job, of course, is now learning on his journey. He started seeing no purpose for his life as you go through the book. And now he knows, he's come to that place of realizing he mustn't give up. He mustn't just capitulate here. What's the change? What was the difference? What was it that changed the early part of the book to where we get to chapter 9? And he's suddenly going, no, you know what? God has commissioned me here to stay strong, to stay true to him through this. What's the change? Well, focusing on the greatness of God. Just as we were doing, looking at some of those examples, focusing on how wonderful God is, how awesome God is, how much in control of history God is. I love that quote from Oswald Chambers. If God is the God that we know him to be when we're closest to him, what an impertinence worry is. Think about the moments when you are closest to God. How can we ever worry? That's the same God. God doesn't change. You see, when we look to him, our perception of ourselves changes. Job makes this comment, and this is the one that Jared mentioned earlier. He's not a man as I am that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. And he says, neither is there between us a daysman. He's looking for somebody to stand in the gap, somebody that would intercede on his behalf. And of course, we read, for there is one God, And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Job didn't yet know Jesus as Jesus, as his Lord, as his Saviour. But he goes on to recognise that there has to be one, as as Gerard mentioned earlier, quite rightly. that At this point, Job is saying, if only there was somebody that could intercede. You see, sometimes we take it for granted what we have, and the knowledge we have, that there is one who will intercede for us. We're going to, we're not going to, go through all these, but just a couple of points from chapter 10 here. My soul is weary of life, Joe says. says, I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in bitterness of my soul. What he's effectively saying is, the burden is wearing me down, but I will not put aside my complaint. In other words, I will not give up my quest for vindication. Barnes again comments and says, the literal sense is, I will leave my complaint upon myself. That is, I will give way to it. I will not restrain it. In other words, He's not just going to capitulate, give in at this point. So, again, in Job chapter 7, Job was saying he'll complain because of the bitterness. And what that, that bitterness at that point was, why was I ever born? But as he goes on and starts to think through things, in chapter 10, he's saying that he will not just capitulate, but rather, through the bitter pain, discover the reason. Seek God, knowing that there's hope, there's something to look forward to. And I will say unto God, chapter 10, verse 2, do not condemn me. Show me wherefore you contend with me. He's saying, okay, God, I want to know what this is about. Show me why you're contending with me. And God's character, of course, at this point, has been totally uh, maligned unwittingly by Job's friends. And so Job is now seeking vindication for himself and also for God. <clears throat> In uh, chapter 10, verse 7, Job makes a point that I'm not wicked. This isn't because of sin. And it's a direct refutation on that which Eliphaz and Bildad had said and so on. So 
There must be another explanation for the suffering. Of course, we look at it from the outside. We know there's another explanation. We know of all that God was accomplishing through this and why God allowed it. Because going through it, Job didn't know. Nor could he be allowed to know. Because in a sense, it would have made a, a mockery of that which was trying to be accomplished here. Well, as we go through, we see effectively this toggling. So the, the first part, the first 14 uh, chapters, Job speaks, Eliphaz comes back. Job speaks, Bildad gives his, his opinion. Job speaks, and then Zophar uh, speaks. And then the second part from chapter 15 through to 21, Eliphaz speaks, uh, and then Job answers. Then Bildad speaks, and Job answers. And then Zophar speaks, and then Job answers. And then from chapter 22 to 31, we find Eliphaz speaks and Job answers. Bildad speaks and Job answers. And this kind of constant toing and froing. But you notice Zophar doesn't carry on at this point. He's only gone so far. <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, he's out of the argument. He's got nothing else he wants to add or nothing else he wants to say uh, at this point. And then we come to the speech of Elihu, uh, which takes us from chapter 32 through to 37. And then finally, um, God speaks to Job and the response we'll see. Just a couple of key verses before we just tail off. In chapter 13, we read there, Surely I would speak to the Almighty and desire to reason with God. But you are forgers of lies. You are all physicians of no value. Just mention this. I think this is important because Job's friends have spoken to each other, but not to God. They haven't gone to God in prayer as Job had done. You see, and if we act in the affairs of others, independent of God, just like this, we've become physicians of no value. You know, we're very good at that little phrase. When somebody comes to us and shares a problem, I'll pray for you. And we say it with good intentions, but do we really then go back and pray? I hope we do, and I pray that we do. I really want us to be that kind of people that bear each other's burdens, not just verbally, but really truly get on our knees before the throne and pray for one another. But if we try and offer advice, try and help each other out, without going to God, then we're physicians of no value. It's a real key point that we can take hold of there. Well, this verse we said earlier, chapter uh, 13, verse 15, where Job says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What a declaration of faith. In chapter 13 also, Job says, he also shall be my salvation. And then goes on and says, for I know that I shall be justified. Again, this is before the cross. Great insight. This hope that Job had in the God that he served. You see, hope was in God for salvation and justification yet to come. And again, at the end of the verse 19 there, he restates his calling. I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to find out what's going on here. I'm going to seek God. And it may be, of course, for us that we never find out. We're not ever told that Job was revealed why all this took place. But, of course, God understands. Chapter 14, there's a couple of verses there. And we see the, the whole idea of this growing in grace as Job moves on. He says, if a man shall die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. I love that. Job is faithfully saying, there's going to come a day. This life is not all there is. It's just a shadow land. There is a time that my change will come. There is a resurrection coming. And this mortality will put on immortality. Job acknowledges that. Another quote of Oswald Chambers, he says, If the study of the book of Job is making us reverent with what we don't understand, we are gaining insight. 
you know, there's so much about God that we don't really fully understand. And some of the great things that we start to discover in the book of Job just get us thinking about the God we serve. 2 Peter 1.4 simply says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. These exceeding great and precious promises throughout God's word. In chapters 23 to 24, uh, Job's partway through rebutting uh, Eliphaz at this point. Uh, Eliphaz's argument is very typical of Satan's wiles. It's interesting. Effectively he says, God can't use someone like you. And you're not good enough. And think of all the bad things you've done. And if you say sorry, well then, if you say sorry, well confess and it will be okay, it will happen. Name it, claim it, effectively is what's being said. Become prosperous. It's interesting, all these ideas are being put forward. And with so much of this goes on today. You know, and Satan will often use those same type of arguments in your life, telling you you're not good enough, you don't deserve to serve God, look at all the bad things you've done, and so on. You know, and try to encourage you to take shortcuts and whatever. Well, Job's response is quite simple here. He says, you know, he longs to speak to God. He knows that God will vindicate him. He says, although I cannot see him, he knows my every step. He says, I've not committed the evil you think of me. and He's putting me through a furnace to try me. And he says, I will come forth as gold. He says, I still love his word. And I'm in awe at his great power and mercy. You see, then Job goes on and addresses what the wicked really are like. So Job has been accused of being wicked. He said, no, 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 I'm not wicked. And then he goes on and says what the wicked are like. And then this telling uh, verse in chapter 24, verse 1, Why, seeing times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they that know him not see his days? What a powerful verse this is. Because time, of course, is in God's hands. And so those who are his own should see the signs of the times and therefore discern the world around us. You see, we live in a world that's very biblically illiterate, a church that's biblically illiterate. Those who do know God don't see his days. They don't recognize the signs of the times. Uh, The scripture speaks of those who are ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We've got a number of barometers that God has given us. The wicked, when we look at the world, when we look at the mystery of iniquity, how things are playing out, it's a barometer of the times we're living in. The church itself, again, another barometer of the times we're living in. We see these things going through the church, every wind of doctrine and so on. The political landscape as well, another sign. The nation of Israel and creation itself, what's going on in the world. God has given us these barometers so that those that know him should see his days. Well, the Jews, of course, were ignorant of the signs of the times. They were blinded. And prophecy, we need to understand, is a roadmap for us as believers. The modern church is, by and large, ignorant of prophecy. And as a result, has lost its way. Well, we then get to the speech of Elihu. Effectively, he starts by stating the need to avoid opinion and base the argument on facts, and then he gives his opinion, um, which is quite interesting. Uh, so many people tend to do that today. Um, the facts, of course, that we need to understand will always be interpreted by our viewpoint. So, you know, we need another basis for interpretation, and that basis needs to be the Word of God, which reveals the character of God. And that brings us on to the last little section of the book. And really, in this point, Job is effectively given a science quiz. Over 70 questions that he's asked, that God asked him. A geology test, he fails it. A physics test, he fails it. Meteorology, he fails. Astronomy, he fails. Biology, he fails. Chemistry, he fails. And zoology, he fails. 
suddenly realising how big our God is. I don't think any of us would have done any better at this, uh, that test either. We thought that then God answers Job out of the whirlwind. You know, God does speak through storms. Barnes made the comment, he spoke amidst lightnings and tempests on Mount Sinai. C.S. Lewis made this comment, he said, pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Interesting comment. The Reformation in Europe was actually sparked by a lightning storm. Uh, that's what set Martin Luther off on his uh, little quest at the time. Uh, and of course the force and power of nature humble us and remind us of our frailty. Satan does use weather events. We've seen that from the beginning of the book. But God also can use the weather um, to draw us sometimes closer to him. Interesting though, in chapter 38 to 42, our attention is drawn to God's amazing creative acts. He demonstrates his power and sovereignty over all creation. But see, creation is just the backdrop for the central message. Amazingly, that God is interested in man. See, God condescends to commune with, instruct, rebuke and restore mankind. We, we ought to just stop and pause and spend an hour just thinking about that fact on its own. That God is interested in mankind. And God wants a relationship with mankind. And God sent his own son to the cross to make that possible. Job is told to gird up the loins, thy loins like a man. For I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Effectively, Job is being called to battle here. Get ready. We're going to have a little wrestling match. And of course, we see God working that way in a number of places in scripture. With Jacob, that same approach is adopted in Genesis 32. Jesus also with Simon Peter in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, after Peter's denied Jesus. There's this little wrestling that Jesus does with him there. And God brings us that point of submission before his glory and majesty. Ephesians 5 and 6 Again there, the conclusion is that we must submit to one another and to the Lord. And God sometimes will put us through these challenging situations in our life to cause us to submit to him. We mustn't be puffed up with pride. Again, our loins are to be girt, not with anything of ourselves, but with spiritual armour. We mustn't rely on our own strength or wisdom. Well, the final chapter of the book, a wonderful little lesson that we're told there. You see, Job, before all of this goes wrong, we're told he has 7,000 sheep and God promises to double. And he ends up with 14,000. Starts off with 3,000 camels. He ends up with 6,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen. He ends up with 1,000 yoke of oxen. 500 female donkeys. He ends up with 1,000 female donkeys. And seven sons, he ends up with another seven sons. That's not doubled, you'll notice. You see, how many children did he start with? How many sons? How many daughters? How many at the end? You see, it's exactly the same. Everything else is doubled, but those children are not. Why? Well, because the animals don't have eternal souls. But Job started with seven sons. He ended up with 14. Just because seven had gone on to eternity before him. He started with three daughters. He ended up with six daughters. Three had gone on into eternity ahead of him. You see, this again... It makes a mockery of those that try and say that evolutionary process is how we got here and that we are just evolved animals, mammals, whatever. Ecclesiastes tell us, all go on to one place, talking of physically, all of the dust and turn, turn to dust again. So physically, our bodies will just go back to the dust. That's true. But then he says, this is Solomon speaking, who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes down to the earth. There's a distinction between man and animals. And at the end of the book of Job, we're given it in a very dramatic fashion. 
that we are totally different. We're eternal. And of course, evolution, therefore, is an insult to intelligence and most importantly, it's an insult to God. Again, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and so on. And so the book concludes, And in all the lands there were no women found as fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. It's interesting, again, this again predates the law given to Moses. Verse 16, After this Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. And we're not told whether Job was ever told what this was all about. But that didn't mean that he gave up trying to seek. He knew that God would be justified. He knew at the end of the day he would be justified. He has been. His record in scripture. And that God would be justified. And God's plan of redemption has been justified. Once again, it's everything that he said it would be. When we get to heaven, we'll look back and we'll realize it's everything that he said it would be. And even better than we would believe. And he's counting down the days till he says, come with me. And finally, he'll wipe every tear from our eyes and make everything new, just like he promised. Wait and see. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this book of Job. We thank you for Job as a person. The fact that he did not give in. That, Lord, he stayed true to you. He wouldn't blame you. He wouldn't curse you. He knew that you were good. And that although he didn't understand his suffering, he knew that you are a just and a faithful God. He knew, Lord, that his Redeemer lives and that one day he would stand and see him in his flesh. Father, we thank you for the multitude of lessons that we can draw from this book. Lord, just cause us to grow in knowledge and grace. And Father, may we grow... Lord, just ever more fearful of you in the right way, not terrified, but fear, Lord, of your great sovereignty, that you are such an awesome God. Lord, we just thank you for these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts, we pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen.